Hey guys, sorry, I don't mean to go all FDR on you or anything, but here's the new deal. All the interviews are now going up first at scotthortonshow.substack.com. Of course, they'll all be going up at scotthorton.org the next day, and the archives going back to 1999 will still be free for you there at scotthorton.org. But I got to generate revenue, you know. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, look, you guys, on the line, I got Peter Van Buren. He used to work for the State Department, but he's a good guy now. And he wrote this book called We Meant Well about working for the State Department in Iraq. And the ghost of Tom Joad about the financial catastrophe and the tip of my tongue about... Um, Hooper's War. Hooper's War, exactly. About uh, It's a novel about World War II Japan, but really it's about you and me right now. And his website is We Meant Well, and he writes regularly at the American Conservative and from time to time, at least, at the Libertarian Institute, at libertarianinstitute.org. Right. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Peter? It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. It really actually is. Uh, good. I like talking to you too, man. I'll yeah. tell you what. I like reading your stuff too. You're pretty bright. So a lot of us have been worried that, you know, not to be too alarmist about it, like, oh, there's going to be a nuclear war. I have a friend of mine who texts me every week or so, like, okay, what do you think it is, man? 90-10, 80-20, 30 He's moved out to the country. I'm kind of not that alarmist. I think, you know, it's probably not going to happen, you know, just like my whole life it hadn't happened. At the same time, though, I think it can only be fairly said that, the current level of tension and violent crisis between America and Russia is worse than 1983 and the Abel Archer near miss and just that whole kind of era of tension of the early Reagan years. We weren't in a hot war, proxy war on Russia's border, never mind the USSR's border at that time. Um, and then, you know, so people bring up 1962, which, you know, I was raised to understand was the absolute brink of nuclear war, meaning you cannot get closer to nuclear war than that. And there were some things, right, where one of those subs almost launched a torpedo and where Kennedy kind of had to ignore Khrushchev's second letter and just accept the terms of the first one and these kinds of things, this whole um, Bobby Kennedy, I read the quote today, Bobby Kennedy told um, the, I forget who, his Russian contact, I forget if he's the ambassador or not, now listen, we're facing the threat of a military coup d'etat here. You got to understand the pressure that we're on, uh, that we're under. That's the attorney general talking. That he's afraid the military is going to remove him and his brother from power. And so, that's some pretty bad times. You know, that's the brink well, of it. They right did, there. but it was, it, they did, but it was a year and a half later. Yeah, exactly. And that's different. Um, uh, had a couple of cutouts. You have to, you have to bring up the deniable parts. 
Um, no, but so uh, that's, I guess, if that's the brink, we're somewhere between 1983 and 62. And so even then we didn't have fighting. We just almost did have nuclear fighting. Yeah. But um, so anyway, I'll be quiet now because you got this. I just want to hear you talk about uh, what you think about this. You have this article where you go, hey, you know, I'm only moderately concerned if I can paraphrase. So. I want yeah, to hear you thinking. I, I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even go with moderately concerned. I'm not. I'm mm. not actually concerned that there's going to be a nuclear war. I, I think I, I'm far more worried, in, in kind of a broad sense, that there would be some accident that would would. If you want to know what keeps me up at night, it's North Korean industrial safety and and, and security. It's the idea that those guys have nuclear power plants where they've got to have been duct taping the duct tape for the last twenty years and. That's what keeps me up at night. If you want to, if you want to talk about worrying about nuclear stuff, you know, North Korea is on my list here today, actually, and okay, I think we'll that's get, very important. But we'll get to them. Okay, you know that one of those nuclear power plants goes critical, and they don't have a clue of how to control it, and the wind blows the radiation all over Seoul or all over Tokyo or vice versa, and then the Chinese. Uh, feel they have to intervene in order to stop a global catastrophe. And so the Chinese basically invade North Korea and the United States has to sit there and decide whether to trust the Chinese are basically just showing up long enough to tamp down the nuclear destruction or whether the United States needs to get directly military involved against the Chinese. And since there's not much to bomb in North Korea, that whether the United States needs to start striking north of the Yalu River at the buildup of Chinese forces. And meanwhile, the nuclear power plant is leaking all over Northeast Asia. So that's my disaster scenario. And that one is as real as one untightened bolt somewhere in North Korea. So if you want to worry about something, slide that one into the mix and see where that leaves you. But the good news is that let's talk about the Ukraine and let's talk about nuclear weapons. Now, in order to understand my, my argument, you have to sort of agree with a couple of stipulations. And it's easy here with, with, with you because you're actually thoughtful and educated as opposed to say, Joe Biden and the entire nuclear American strategic uh, power structure. But you, you've got to realize that Putin, like nearly every world leader, I was going to say all world leaders, because I do believe that's true, but nearly every world leader is, is a rational person. He, he didn't get to that position of power. He's not holding on to that position of power by being irrational. And if anybody wants to, to, to send a postcard in and, and kind of lay out some irrational act by Putin, you know, you're welcome to do that. And that's not to say everything he does works out. He makes mistakes. But they're mistakes that occur within a rational, predictable structure. And that means you can anticipate them and you can react to them in, in a rational, predictable way. Irrational means that they don't make any sense. And, you know, you're not going to do it. It's, it's how you end up with the, uh, the, the tiger in your hotel room in, in that one movie. You know, that's all <laughs> irrational actions. It was, it was The Hangover. Um, not a bad movie, all, all things can do. Very, 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 very light on nuclear strategy, however, so we won't go any further with that. So you start with Putin being irrational, not a madman, not a crazy person. And, and then you go back and you say, well, why is he invading? Why did he invade Ukraine? And the gut level 
reason was that he needs a buffer zone between himself and NATO. NATO lied to him at the end of the Cold War and said, we're not planning on expanding east. Don't worry. Well, not to him personally. He was still a young pup at that time, but lied to the, the old Soviet Union and said, we're not expanding east, and then basically started expanding east. And the, the Russians, the Soviets first, and then the Russians later had to react to that. And it's taken some time. Um, there's, you know, they had a kind of a revolution and stuff like that that slowed them down. And then they got kind of tangled up in Afghanistan. Who would ever think about doing something that stupid? I have if you no want idea. to argue, if you want to argue irrational, that's about as close as we can come. Um, but I was talking about the Americans there. Haha, <laughs> you got it. Um, and so Putin needs a, a buffer zone between himself and NATO, and that's what he's doing in, in the Ukraine. And he's been able to satisfy that for the most part. He's gotten a bunch of land that if you, at least it hasn't gone as well as it should have militarily for, for Putin. And so it's not quite back to the 2014 borders, but it's in that it's in the it's going to eventually work its way into that same place. You're going to go you're going to look at an end game here. That sort of status quo of February of, of 2022, which is basically status quo of 2014, where you've got the eastern chunk of Ukraine, a good 20 percent of the country under Russian control. If that's the goal, then you don't need nuclear weapons to do that. Conventional weapons are going to work just fine and, in fact, are working just fine. And that anything beyond conventional weapons would be a mistake, an irrational act, and, and therefore isn't going to happen. We can go deeper and talk about, well, what can you do with nuclear weapons? But let me stop there and see see what you think. Well, I'm not so sure that it'd be that easy. In fact, this okay. is kind of my first objection to your article when I was reading it was, sure. I'm not so sure that, I think you kind of say like, eh. You know, at the worst, he'd have to lose face if all he gets is the eastern Donbass uh, right. back to where he was. But, I mean, at this point, he has, uh, you know, officially annexed all the way to Kursan and including Zaprosia there. And, of course, you know, I mean, Medvedev, I believe, is sort of the mm -hmm. the winger up there. But Medvedev says it's time to annex Odessa next. And obviously, Odessa is the jewel. McGregor is certain that eventually they're going to take Odessa too, because yeah. historically it's a Russian city. It's part of essentially the old uh, Russian, you know, sovereignty through that area I, I there. And they, it, they would like to take Odessa, yes. They, yeah, well, and, and so they've had some setbacks, but then again, they're calling up a massive army here too. And right, so, a conventional army. Right. Uh, yes, a conventional one. Yeah, but and, so, and I'm not arguing the war's over. I'm just saying why well, we're not going to. So I want to ask you actually about how the war is going, too, because that is a huge part of this. You know, I'm reading yeah. a thing this morning from McGregor, which is typically, you know, uh, pessimistic from the Ukrainian point of view about their ability to withstand uh, Russian pressure over the long term. But then I'm sure you saw this thing in The New Yorker where they talked about how you have the CIA and the Special Operations Forces and the Joint Chiefs Command Structure, Joint Staff, whoever, who are helping the Ukrainians plan this war. And they got all these fancy algorithms that help them, you know, figure out their counterattacks. And they've got these HIMARS and harm missiles now that have given them this huge advantage they didn't have before and all of these things. And so they're pretty sure that they're going to be able to 
continue to, uh, you know, push the Russians all the way back out again. So there's a unstoppable force and an immovable object in the form of massive Russian infantry on one hand and NATO technology and money on the other. And I don't know how much manpower the Ukrainians really have. It seems like a nation full of fighting age males, if you can script them all. So um, it looks to me like the war could go on and on and the battlefield could be, you know, could go back and forth quite a bit in that, you know, know, what's her, uh, Evelyn Farkas used to work for Obama, had a thing in what you call it, the Hawks News that came out yesterday uh, about, and the subtitle even is like, yes, we do risk escalation to war between America and Russia, but we can't stop now. You know, like that's the Democrats (laughs) talking here is, you know, they're saying that. And but again, oh, it would still stay conventional, though, I guess. Don't worry. I By the way, just... the best the best warmongering ever was a Bloomberg column. And I can't remember Dan, Dan, Dan something. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it. But he basically, within the span of about twelve hundred words, walked his way from uh, proxy war with Ukraine to 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 overt war with Russia to war with China and war with Iran and a triple front <laughs> war. And he did this so skillfully that you you kind of reading along like, oh, OK, and I guess that's when we start fighting the Iranians. Yes. It makes <laughs> yeah. sense. And it was it was nicely written, very, very skillfully written till you realize it's all utter crap. Now, I mean, go go back, go back and look what you're saying, because, you know, you know, I have a weak heart. And what do you do? You come right at me with the American military, which hasn't won a war since 1945, is going to is so powerful that it's going to sweep the Russians off their feet in in the Ukraine. OK, but um, uh, uh, that's know. fair. That's fair. However, you know, fighting the Taliban and and Iraqi insurgents with landmines. And, you know, our guys out just patrolling, getting, you know, bled to death, playing bullet sponge. That is different than going mano a mano with an actual land army that's made of tanks and hard positions that can be bombed and that kind of stuff. Right. And here here comes the judo move, because, in fact, that's one of the arguments I make against Putin using nuclear weapons is that the use of nuclear weapons under whatever circumstances would bring the United States into the war conventionally. There's no question in my mind about it. Um, It may be airstrikes. It may be more special forces. It may be some, it may be a bigger step than that, but it would bring the United States in conventionally. And for all the, 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 the uh, criticism we offer of the American military, um, basically this is the war they've been preparing to fight since 1945. Yeah. Um, a standard infantry slug match. I saw David Petraeus uh, interviewed the other night, and he was positively giddy talking about the capabilities of the uh, of the we German do. tanks and the American missiles. And it was really kind of comical because he started out in his usual in his current uh, pro- professorial. Gu- thing where he's trying he's quoting he's quoting clausewitz and all that kind of good stuff and then when he got to the capabilities of of the german tanks he just lit up like a kid at christmas you know it's it's like you're gonna shoot your eye out david and it's like i don't care do you know what those (laughs) babies can do and uh, they've been waiting to fight this war for for 70 some years and that is something that weighs on putin's mind he's watching what a subset of American conventional forces can do to him. And he's 
weighing out whether to escalate against that. But the escalation cannot include nuclear weapons because that would bring the United States in conventionally. And if I were Putin, rule number one for me would be don't let the United States have the excuse they're desperately looking for to get involved conventionally. Biden's going to lose an election in about two weeks. And the Republicans are going to be hearing more from their constituents uh, that it's the economy, stupid, fix inflation, do something about gas prices. We don't really care that much for the time being about Ukraine, even, even though there's generally support for the war. That's not what they're hearing from their constituents, and that's not what's going to win them the midterm elections. And so I think following the midterms, there's going to be a lot less enthusiasm for American intervention here. And the last thing that Putin wants to do is make it inevitable that the United States does intervene more directly, and that would be use of nuclear weapons. So if the, if you needed a quick one, uh, it would be Putin doesn't want the US deep, more deeply involved, either mm -hmm. conventionally or, or with nuclear weapons, because it's the war we've been ready to fight for 70-some years and, and do have a, a reasonable chance of succeeding with. Well, and I have seen uh, Petraeus speaking of Petraeus, and he seemed to be speaking for the government here on this week, I guess two Sundays ago. He mm. said, yeah, if they used a nuke, we would destroy every last bit of their conventional capacity inside Ukraine, and we would sink their Black Sea fleet. Yeah. So my thing is not, oh, I think Putin is about to break out a nuke any minute now. I'm just yeah. saying, for the sake of our argument here, he's already broken out one. And you bring out you you bring up a couple of different scenarios, you know, that don't make too much sense where he might or whatever. Okay. Uh, but if he used a small nuke there, America does this. And my argument is, well, if they're already using nukes, at least one, and then we completely destroy their military and sink their Black Sea fleet the way Petraeus says, well, what do we think they're going to do then? They're going to nuke NATO headquarters is what they're going to do. And then we're going to all die. Well, this is why you don't start. I mean, this is the problem with nuclear war is once you get going, it tends to, 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 to go to its, its natural conclusion. You know, all those war games that are played out in Washington, D.C. all the time, basically, unless one side unilaterally says stop, no, they almost always end with Moscow and, and, and New York glowing in the dark. Because you do work your way up very quickly up these steps, and they're big steps when you're talking about nuclear weapons. They're not sort of we'll fix it later steps. They're 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 incredibly destructive. Nuclear weapons are are like that, and I think Putin is well aware of that and isn't going to do it. So you you, you take a look and you say, well, fine. He's got a. I wonder if they call their their adversary the red team or not. Because we always call the, the Russians the red team, mm -hmm. and we're always the blue team um, in these in these war games and whatever. I wonder if they call themselves the red team, or do they do they switch it around, That's or how funny. they work? That's an interesting point. Let's see if I, we'll take a couple callers on that one. Okay, um, but so back to the question of how determined America is mm. to see a Russian defeat in Ukraine. And how much it means to them to not lose. And I think your major premise here is, and eh, they're willing to settle for 2014 lines. I mean, yeah. God, I hope that's right. But they just annexed, you know, a third of the country, officially anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing to say you've annexed something. In reality, 
this, they control certain pieces of territory, which they're going to continue to control, largely because they're they're Russian. They're they're Russian speaking. They're Russian sympathetic. You know, this idea that every Ukrainian is going to fight to the end doesn't necessarily apply to all of the 20 percent of Ukraine that Russia has taken hold of. Um, a lot of it has is very sympathetic to Russia and not unopposed to being part of Russia. The Russians are doing what they can to make that so. They're deporting people and they're moving populations around and they're, they're, they're putting in place measures that cause people to get up and immigrate uh, westward and things like that. So they're digging in in a political sense. And the annexation is just really a, a, a sliver of all that. It doesn't mean that much. Nobody's going to go to the UN and argue that we, we took a vote and they voted for us, so you got to let us have it. Um, I think it's just one step. Uh, combined with moving populations around, putting in place uh, rules and laws, if you will, that will cause people to to leave if they don't like what the the, the Russians are doing, and make it easy for them to do that. Um, don't bomb the convoys and all that other good stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing all that, you're making these areas more and more Russian. The annexation itself is just like I said, a bit of paper. It's not going to really be that that controlling. But in the end, it, it simply has to end somewhere. Um, and I don't think the Russians are as dumb as they look and are going to ask for another Afghanistan. The United States would be thrilled to give them another Afghanistan where we micrometer increase the level of, of, of equipment and troops and technology to the point where we just keep the Ukrainians from winning, but we don't let them slip into losing. Um, basically what happened with in, in Afghanistan, where the Soviets just got backed up against the wall and they couldn't go forward, they couldn't go backward, um, and they just bled out. I don't think the United States would have a problem at all in doing that in the Ukraine, but I'm thinking maybe the Russians are smart enough not to do it twice. Okay, so Biden says, well, we're close to Armageddon. Yeah. But then, by the way, you know, the reason I'm saying that is because I need you guys to understand that we got to give Putin an off ramp here. We got to find a way to let him back down. So he's right. not saying we got to find a way to negotiate with him where he gets to win something. Not yet. Not but, yet. Not yet. But at least, you know, he that's like opening the door for talks. That was the most positive thing, believe it or not, that Armageddon statement. The second half of that statement was the most positive thing I've heard out of this administration this whole time, that yeah. they at least recognize that they can't just hand him a total defeat. Either maybe they can't or they may not do that because it just doesn't make sense to do that. They've got to figure out a way to bring the war to an end sooner than later. I don't know. I wouldn't go with sooner rather than later. Like I said, the United States is very Just happy eventually. To, to, to bleed the Russians yeah. here. As long as, as it stays within the certain the boundaries that it currently is working within. Now, you notice you didn't have uh, this massive refugee flow like you did out of Syria, you know, into Western Europe. That was all contained, uh, you know, in, inside Poland and all that. That's all good news. The United States is very careful about what weapons it's it's giving the Ukrainians, and I'm sure equally um, calm. Every once in a while, something goes wrong where somebody blows up a pipeline or a bridge or something like, or 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 a daughter, uh, and you know where things go go a little bit haywire. But I mean, those are all containable events. You, you go back to nuclear weapons because, in the end of the day, that's what we're what we're talking about here, and. The step from conventional to nuclear is one that no one has ever taken 
except the United States in 1945. Um, and the fact that no one in 70 years has taken that step in all the variety of situations um, tells you something. You know, the sure. United States should have, by, by any military thinking, simply purely military thinking, the United States should have used nuclear weapons in Korea. When we were getting chased out of North Korea by the Chinese army, um, you know, the whole Chosin Reservoir scenario and all that good stuff, the United States should have used nuclear weapons. That would have been, that's the perfect use of nuclear weapons, is to blow up large concentrations of the enemy and the Chinese were massed in, in, in human waves. They were otherwise unstoppable by conventional weapons. Uh, and the United States was not only losing face, but losing tactically the whole point of what they had achieved so far in the war. It would have been the perfect use of nuclear weapons. Um, and it didn't happen. And it was Harry Truman, the same guy who'd used them and it before. And it was Harry Truman, who you know would, was not a big uh, peacenik on, on, this, on this particular issue. Um, with uh, Curtis LeMay, you know, advising him and Douglas MacArthur right. uh, in control on the ground in Korea. So, you know, the scenario was right there. That would have been the perfect use of nuclear weapons. I don't know if China had a nuclear weapon at that time, but certainly they didn't have the delivery systems. It would have been they would have been minimal threat. The Russians would have made a lot of noise, but in the end, not particularly care if the United States nuked, you know, 50, 60,000 Chinese soldiers. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group. And I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertasbella. From the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. You guys, check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61 and as he explains on the back here all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the american war there in say 1964 through 1974 but how do we get there why is this all harry truman's fault find out in why the vietnam war by the great mike swanson available now but you mentioned accidents earlier and i think uh, this sorry, is a big yeah. one is you know, if you look at Afghanistan on the map, well, there's an entire Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan there between Russia and Afghanistan. And you look at Vietnam, there's an entire China between Russia and Vietnam. And the Russians did support the Vietnamese in their resistance against the American invasion there. But there was no way that was going to escalate into a war with Russia. Now, something goes, you know, a car backfires yeah. in East or in uh, you know West Berlin inside East Germany, something like that. That's a real problem because now you're talking direct conflict with the Warsaw Pact there. But uh, having a proxy war in Vietnam or Afghanistan, you know, one way or the other, bleeding one or the other to bankruptcy there, right. that's not the same as this. 
where you're talking, we're 300 miles due south of Moscow here in North yeah. But but you're also you're also dealing with skillful practitioners. You know, um, the U.S. and the Russians know how what their weapons do. They know how to control their weapons. When we talk about accidents, I'm not worried about some corporal pushing the wrong button. I'm I'm much more concerned about nuclear power plants. Um, going going the wrong direction things like that mm-hmm. because if you know I, I doubt there's a tactical nuke anywhere within 500 miles of ukraine at this point in time yeah but what um, about all the mind reading that, that they suck so bad at you know that oh if we like do what? this they'll do that and if we do this they'll read it this way and this but soon, diplomatic but soon, language they're terrible at understanding each other and oh, yeah. projecting, uh, you know, thinking and behavior onto others. And but as soon as you get to the, and then they'll go nuclear, then it's like, uh-oh, we better, we better back off, uh, you know, make it two steps, back off two steps just to be safe. You know, the idea would be that, that you, you, that mind reading stuff when it goes, when it goes bad. But as soon as you start talking about nuclear weapons, it's a different world. And so far in 70 years in history is we study history because it's, it helps us understand that what's going to happen next. You know, nobody has felt the need to go nuclear, including in scenarios that varied from, from pretty significant military, uh, usage scenarios to political scenarios and, and what have you. I mean, a nuclear weapon in Vietnam would have been a, a massive political action. It has nothing to do with the, the quality of the war. We would have blown up a huge swath of jungle. I mean, it's like, it like, you know, Agent Orange kicked into into up to 11 or something like that. I mean, but, but the idea that, that you would have changed the course of the war is, is zero. It would have been a political gesture to show how serious we were. So you, you got to come back to these scenarios, and, I, and I'll challenge you, your listeners to, to, to come up with a scenario other than the ones I have about what you do with nuclear weapons, not just in Ukraine, but pretty much anywhere in any world, in any war, in any, in any world. Well, look, reason, I mean, as you know, know, you wrote a book about this. I mean, every August, we hear from every American that— it's perfectly legitimate to use a nuke to end a war sooner than it otherwise would have ended. That's the right. American rationalization for using a nuke. And under that thinking, Putin could just say, look, either surrender or I'm going to nuke Kiev. And then what? We're going to call his bluff? Well, that, in fact, is, 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 what we, is what we probably would do with the quiet mention that we have nuclear weapons too, which is the big difference between Japan 1945 and anything else is the United States was the sole nuclear power and what the Japanese were essentially a defeated nation. They couldn't even pull off a serious terrorist attack in 1945 um, if they wanted to. And so the idea of using the nuclear weapon to nudge them forward in negotiations, which is the, the standard textbook American argument. We, we know that's not necessarily accurate, but that, that's the standard argument. You know, only works if you're the, your side, the other side doesn't have anything at all that they can wield back a, against you. Um, and that was that, I mean, the Japanese were at that point relegated to crashing their own planes into our ships in hopes that that would help in some, some particular way. Nobody kind of thought through the, you know, gee, they got a lot of big, heavy ships and we have a few small, light airplanes. Yeah, this might work. Um, let's give it a try. 
but let's let's go back to this. So let's let's start with what the United States was thinking to do with um, Japan at one point, which was a demonstration nuke. This was this was very seriously considered in 1945 that we were going to pick a, an, an island in the in the Pacific, get all the people off of it, and then blow it up with a nuclear weapon, and invite the Japanese to watch it and make sure they understood exactly that we did this with one bomb and the island is gone. And that this was going to serve the same purpose as blowing up Hiroshima or, or Nagasaki. And that idea was eventually discarded um, the same way it's been discarded in, Viet in the Vietnam scenario or anywhere else, because all it does is prove lack of resolve. You know, you try to say, well, we, we, we're really ready to blow up Kiev so we're going to set off this nuke, uh, you know, in, in over the Black Sea and show you that. Yep. And it's like, yeah, we know you have nuclear weapons. We know they they probably work. What what other what else are you proving here? You're proving you don't have the guts to bomb Kiev. So I, I would say demonstration nuke off the table. The second is theoretically possible, but doesn't seem to be the nature of this war. And that is basically use nuclear weapons as a big, dumb, gigantic conventional weapon. We could mass together X number of artillery pieces and fire them all at the same time at the same place and achieve near total destruction. Or we can drop one teeny little nuclear weapon and basically get the same thing done. This was what was done in Japan, actually. You know, we had burnt Tokyo to the ground a couple of weeks prior to Hiroshima with conventional weaponry and firebombs and things like that. Um, the destruction in Hiroshima, if you, if you discount the, the, the deaths over the next 20 years from radiation poisoning, which by arguably, you know, the war was over then, but just cause we kept killing them didn't really matter. We didn't, that wasn't really part of the plan. The plan was let's destroy Hiroshima with one little teeny nuclear weapon and show them what we plan to do to all their other cities. We could have done it with conventional weapons, but it just didn't have the, 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 the oomph behind it. So you can do something like that in the Ukraine, but what are you going to blow up? Uh, I mean, you're going to irradiate territory you hope to conquer. You're, you're going to just bring the United States in as an after effect and say, okay, well, we, we turned Kiev into, uh, into cinders now the Americans are on the ground in Ukraine. Not necessarily a win-win situation. Got prevailing and, winds to deal with, too. And, yeah, there you go. Think about that. You've got prevailing Literal winds. blowback. You've got, ooh, points to Scott on that one. Um, literal blowback. Um, plus Backtrack. the possibility that the United States is going to get involved nuclear with their own nuclear weapon. No. Third would be some kind of leadership decapitation strike, you know, where you're going to blow out. Zelensky and hope he'll be replaced with someone who's, who's more willing to negotiate and things like that. Again, you can do that with conventional weapons. It requires a level of intelligence that so far I don't think the Russians have. Uh, the United States tried to do it twice with Saddam and missed both times. So it's not an easy thing to do. It also assumes that Zelensky is this miracle man, this you know combination of George Washington, Winston Churchill, and I don't know, George Patton, that the Western media makes him out to be, that his loss would produce only some wimpy uh, shadow of the former president himself. 
that a future leader wouldn't be just as angry and determined. So I don't think there's anything to do with that. Um, and, and the last is just to force a surrender by just blowing stuff up. Um, you blow up one Ukrainian city and say, surrender yet? You blow up a second Ukrainian city, say, ready to surrender yet? Blow up a third one, we really want Odessa, ready to surrender yet? But that, again, worked in 1945 only because the Japanese were utterly unable to defend themselves and unable to strike back in any way whatsoever against the United States. The Russians aren't going to get two nuclear blasts for free the way the United States did in 1945. And we would have had a third one if the bomb had been, you know, the bomb had been ready because the Japanese still hadn't surrendered. Okay, but Um, I got more paranoid takes. Okay. What about, it says in the media there that the Russians specialize in low-yield nukes, even smaller nukes than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that this is exactly what they're for, is to make up for the fact they don't really have the kind of conventional strength that America can deploy, but they can drop atom bombs in the single-digit kilotons that essentially are just big bombs. Forget a taboo. It's a big bomb when you need one. You can't forget a taboo. You, you can't just leave the taboo to the side. Taboos are... are this taboo is there in, in a real... Okay, but so why they make so many of the little bitty ones then? Well, because we have them. And, and you know you know how this works. This was this was the Cold War. The United States has this kind of weapon. They have that kind of weapon. Um, you know, if, if, if Russia uses a small, itty-bitty little tactical nuclear weapon, the United States is not going to blow up Moscow, Leningrad, and, and Vladivostok. You well, know, not for another be... three or four days, right, after it escalates. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna, they're going to have a little bitty one, and we'll have a little bitty one, and they'll have a bigger one, and we'll have a bigger one, and so forth. No, no, they have them because we have them, and we have them because they have them. And if it comes to using them, then they want the option of, of being able to choose what kind of weapon they use, okay. how big a splash they, they make. Sense. All right, now, but so our guys yeah. say that they have a policy called escalate to de-escalate that they will yeah. use a nuke in order to prove what badasses they are and how serious they are that they would use a nuke. And that yeah. uh, if you go back to Trump years, his Defense Department ran um, you know, war games and then leaked them that said, that'll never work on us if you ever use a nuke to escalate to de-escalate. We'll just nuke Belarus or something like that. We're, right. uh, we'll use a bigger one right away, so don't try that. In other words, our policy is escalate to de-escalate. And... But so they're but they're apparently incapable of saying, yeah, but they're going to accept our escalate to de-escalate policy just about as much as we accept theirs, which is not at all. So, in other words, once somebody sets off one of these, assuming they're right about the Russians at all, that's kind of my question for if you even think that's really their policy at all. But if it is, see, that's the other thing, right, is. You know, it's really easy to project your own rationality onto them, and I agree that. Putin might be ruthless, but he ain't crazy, you know, but at the same time, eh, you know, there's public choice theory and, you know, weird incentives that yeah. affect government employees when they make decisions. You know what I mean? I don't know. They, they make bad decisions all the time. I mean, this war itself was. But they haven't made this one. And this is what I'm kind of leaning more heavily on. And so it's, right. it's a little bit more than simply projecting my own rationality on there. It's a idea that at the end of it all in 70 years in every single possible scenario that's that happened 
it hasn't happened. Nuclear war hasn't happened. It's based on my own. I, I never served in Russia with the State Department. I never negotiated anything with Russians. I don't know if I ever even met any Russian diplomats, maybe one, uh, you know, like at a party or something. But I never worked with them. So I can't be one of these kind of Russian experts that that's on MSNBC and all. But I can say that in, in every single instance where I worked with a foreign diplomat, when the doors were closed and there were no cameras, it was a lot of very rational people talking very, very rationally, sometimes with the caveat that, hey, as soon as the cameras come on, I'm going to have to become irrational again. But don't you believe it? All right. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and that that counts for, for with with various kinds of Koreans and Chinese and, and even even our allies. Everybody in the end, n- nuclear stuff is just too big a threshold to cross. Putin knows that. If anything was going to cause harm to to Mother Russia, it was going to be starting a nuclear war with the only other nation on Earth that has him outarmed as a nuclear power. And if anything was going to defeat his goals in Ukraine, in other words, grab this this territory and hold it, it was going to be something, anything that brought the United States in as an overt force or NATO in as an overt force and nuclear weapons tick both of those boxes and therefore cannot be on the menu for Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I know you just said that you're not a Russia expert from your time in the state department, but yeah. you also did say that the Americans promised the Soviets that they would not expand NATO into yeah. the former Warsaw Pact states and republics if they would withdraw and so I know that obviously we all know that from the New York Times and from the National Security Archive at George Washington University. That's right. And from Ted Snyder's great writing at antiwar.com. But I wonder if you also do know that from your time at the State Department, that everybody talked about that and everybody knew that that was the deal literally at work, not just in the newspaper. You know, I think it was it was an understood thing. Um, I, I can't speak to it as as directly as 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 I may like to. But first, the idea is that we now uh, we understand and, and accept that that's what really happened. National Security Archive has done fantastic work on this, um, and they they have they have quotes from the first George Bush. They have quotes from Colin Powell. Colin Powell was flying back and forth trying to negotiate. He was working on these negotiations. James Baker, in particular, was working on these negotiations for George W. Bush. And it was without a question that, according to the National Security Archives, that these guys were promising the former Soviet states that they would be under NATO's protection. How the hell do you think they gave, they got the Ukrainians to give up 5,000 nuclear weapons other than to promise them protection from the Soviet Union if they gave up the nuclear weapons. Now, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if they got real NATO or they got pseudo-NATO, which is what Ukraine got out of the deal, because it's what people think they got, not necessarily what the reality of this is. And NATO has been proceeding, or I'm sorry, Ukraine has been proceeding as if they're under the NATO umbrella. Um, they take their actions every day. When Zelensky says, you know, we're going to fight to the end, he's saying, because NATO is going to be covering my ass here in case things go real bad, if the Russians decide to send all 300,000 of those con- those new conscripts in at one time, NATO has got me, has got my back in some, some form of that. 
The United States lied to the old Soviet Union. We absolutely straight up told them that NATO had no eastward ambitions. And in fact, we, we did. And that lie has come to finally bite us in the behind because Putin has decided it's time to do something about that. He's been nibbling away, obviously, over the years with Crimea and, and the, uh, the Donbass and things like that. And then he finally decided with, the, with this invasion of the Ukraine in February that he was going to take a bigger bite and put a lot more land in between himself and, and Ukraine. And this is, this is good old-fashioned World War II stuff where you want lots of terrain that it takes a long time for tanks to drive from one place to another between you and the other side. Um, it all goes back to the lies that were told, and it all goes back to us not being willing to, uh, to take advantage, to, us, us being willing to take advantage of a situation where briefly the Soviet Union was so weakened that they weren't able to really stand up for themselves. Um, it shows what happens when you don't let the diplomats do what they do best, which is try to reach some kind of lasting balance as opposed to something that looks and sounds good um, when instead you're rushing to get these nuclear weapons out of the hands of, of all the, uh, the former Soviet Union places and, and leave them all bare and naked with the promise that you, the quiet promise under the table and that Latvia and Lithuania and, and places like that are all going to become NATO countries. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. Well, you know, so I'm not saying there's a threat of this that I've ever heard of any credible one, but let's say that tensions escalate over Kaliningrad and Russia and Belarus start threatening Lithuania. Yeah. And let's say they put troops in Lithuania. They're going to carve out a corridor to Danzig, I mean, to Kaliningrad. And uh, so then we go to straight into World War Two. I mean, three at that point. Um is America, you know, Pat Buchanan has said for years, come on, we really going to fight Russia for Lithuania. We're making promises that we have no intention of keeping. But I wonder if that's really true. It seems like Biden would be happy to get Austin, Texas nuked over Lithuania if it came down to it. A promise is a promise. It says it right there on a piece of paper. Well, if, if, new, if Austin is threatened, you are welcome to come stay with me. Okay, um, until, until the crisis blows over, we can Hawaii do the has been heavily militarized. I hope that Hawaii, you, you know. I sit. I, I I'm about a, about a 15 minute walk from Pearl Harbor. Okay, if you want to talk about <laughs> proximity to nuclear weapons, I mean, I think among all of your guests, unless you've got someone who flies B-52s, um, I think I've got a good good chance of being the closest one to an active nuclear bomb at this moment. Wow. Um, in, in history. Um, I've got Pearl Harbor. I've got Hickam Air Force Base. I've got Schofield Barracks. They're all within long walking distance, short nuclear radiation distance uh, from where I'm sitting right now. I always so, knew you were yeah. a Japanese spy. And here I am a spy for all, you know, for all comers. Oh, no. Um, nonetheless, you know, that not that the whole question? I mean, that's the whole thing with NATO. That's the whole thing in, in a sentence is how true is it and are you ready to risk every you mr putin ready to risk everything to find out how true the nato pledge is and i think the answer is that nato would have no choice but to honor the pledge for lithuania knowing that if they didn't honor lithuania they would be challenged you know in in germany or poland or someplace arguably more substantial and 
the Russians know that we can't give in on those smaller, less, quote unquote, less important places. Um, and we know we can't. It was a real devil's bargain to pick those places and bring them into Lithuania, I mean, Lithuania, Bulgaria, you know, pick your Croatia, you know, pick, pick which one you want. Where, where you're going to try to convince Americans, and Americans are easily convinced that we need to go to war for Lithuania. So the American public is certainly not one of your obstacles. Um, I think we would, in fact, go to war over Lithuania because it would be the way of preventing, convincing the Russians of that and truly doing it if necessary. If they step over the line, we step over the line, convinces them to stay on their side of the line. And it's worked. Well, um, until it doesn't. And until it I, doesn't, right. Yeah, sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than the Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all gotta check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casale's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasale.com slash ronpaul and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks. And this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasale.com slash ronpaul. Casale is C-A-S-A-L-I. RickCasali.com slash Ron Paul. And there's free shipping too. And so this is the thing too is, uh, you know, not to belabor the point, but that's kind of the point is as you said before though, and this is why it'll never happen. So rest assured, fine. But once they start going off, there's no way to back down from there. America loses a city. What are we going to just take it? Nope. We're going to have to nuke back. They're going to nuke back, et cetera, et cetera. And then especially very early in the exchange, somewhere the blue folder gets taken off the shelf. It says, use them or lose them. If we don't yep. launch all our Minutemen right now, they're just sitting there in their silos like sitting ducks. And so, which that's their fault for putting them there, but they're the nuclear sponge. That's what they're there for. But so then we got to launch them all before the Russians hit them. In their silos. And so at that point, you're talking about, you know, a World War II worth of people killed every day for a week or so until it's all over. I want to put in a plug here for a great 1960s movie uh, show up on, on uh, Hulu or Netflix or somewhere every once in a while called Failsafe um, with Henry Fonda uh, as the president. And basically, I can't remember the setup, but something happens that the U.S. and the, and the, and the Russians now are ready to go to nuclear war with each other. And Moscow accidentally gets, gets vaporized by the United States. And in order to convince the Russians not to escalate to full nuclear war, the American president, Henry Fonda, 
volunteers to bomb New York City ourselves and to vaporize New York City as a way of proving that we want the war to stop, that we'll do it, we'll do the job ourselves. And the film ends with, I shouldn't tell the ending, but the film ends with uh, New York getting vaporized. It's uh, so unfair. They should have had a nuke DC. Why nuke New York? They're so I think selfish. It, yeah, I, I know. But so it, uh, there's also a strong argument that we get rid of New York and start over. So, you okay. know. Well, I know you have your own personal feelings, man. I'm in Austin. I don't know much about that. But yeah. I know that I would have preferred to see DC nuked, even though my buddies Grant Smith and Gareth Porter and a few others live there. But Well, we'd save Gareth as a national uh, treasure. Yeah, we'd have to get Gareth out of there first. He'd be secretly smuggled out of the city to a secure location. But does that sound like a fair trade to you? Moscow for New York should be the capital. Capital for the capital. You bought the government. Capital for the capital, I guess. I don't know. Maybe the producers had it in for New York. Maybe, you know, whatever they had. They love government because they're Democrats. Well, that could explain it, too. It's, It's that liberal Hollywood thing again. Yeah. All right, enough of this nuke stuff. Wait, let's talk about nukes, but in Korea, because this is something that I know you have some real expertise about. Okay. And um, it occurs to me, Mm. in fact, I know I'm right, that uh, 20 years ago, I don't know, today, somewhere right around there, John Bolton and George W. Bush ruined everything. And the first thing they did was break the agreed framework deal. And then they announced over a lie that, uh, the North Koreans were spinning uh, uranium enrichment illegally, which there's no proof they had an enrichment program at all. And it wouldn't have been against the agreed framework or their safeguards agreement if they had been doing so anyway. But the Americans broke the agreed framework. Then they announced new sanctions. And then they announced the new proliferation security initiative, which was claiming their unilateral right to seize North Korean boats on the high seas. And then they put them in the nuclear posture review, saying maybe we'll just have to put North Korea on the short list for a nuclear first strike. And only then did Kim Jong-il announce he was leaving the nonproliferation treaty and withdrawing from his safeguards agreement and started making nuclear weapons, every single one of which he's tested, his regime, is him and his son have tested, have been made out of plutonium, harvested from their Yongbyon uh, reactor that the Soviets had built for them back then. None of them uranium bombs. Anyway, so, um, and no evidence of that aluminum tubes nuclear program that Bolton lied about back then. And so it was 100% John Bolton and George W. Bush and Kim Jong-il's fault equally that North Korea is sitting on a pile of nuclear weapons right now. And then ever since then, the they had no plan. I don't know what they thought their plan was. Maybe this was their plan. They preferred North Korea had nukes. I don't know. That's one question. But then... Ever since then, Bush and Obama and not so much Trump, there was, well, yeah, ultimately he hired Bolton and ruined it. So, yes, ultimately Trump, too. Um, And then now Biden, continuing the Obama uh, W. Bush policy, is screw North Korea. We hate them. We won't talk to them. And as soon as they unconditionally surrender all their nuclear weapons to us, then we'll think about talking with them about anything else. Until then, we hope that they have another famine soon because we hate them so much. Sincerely, the Democrats and the United States of America, and that's it. So I don't think that that's very smart. And I think that like what you say about, man, a guy could drop a wrench down a silo in North Korea and the thing would go off, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So um, 
so make some sense out of this and correct me where I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know that I do, so you don't have to. But uh, so, I mean, what is the damn problem here? I think the, 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 the problem is, is that, you know, Bolton and, and, and Bush thought either they were going to call North Korea's bluff and North Korea wasn't going to do anything or that North Korea was going to give them an excuse to go to war and they would have gone to war. And instead, North Korea kind of threaded it, threaded the needle kind of carefully and was able to go test the nuclear weapon um, without seemingly pushing the United States into some kind of nuclear response. I think North Korea exists because we want a bad guy that is like truly always bad. I think this is one of the things that pissed everybody off when Donald Trump made his nascent efforts to uh, uh, make peace with North Korea is like, no, no, no. North Korea is the bad guy. That's always the bad guy. And it's the one we don't argue about. It's not, it's the one where, you know, we don't send uh, people there on, on, good faith, uh, goodwill building missions. It's North Korea, man. It's always the bad guys, the worst of the worst. Um, and the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons is incredibly scary to me because there you have people who are, like I said, industrial safety has got to be a, a, a terrible, it, can't, it doesn't seem like it's their strong point. Hey, you know what? Let me interrupt you here for just a second. For, yeah. There are a lot of young people listening to this show, and, and who knows? People who are just interested in politics for the first time in their lives. Maybe they don't understand about North Korea at all. They, like, isn't it really right? This is the like by ratio, the greatest garrison state in the history of the world, right? Like two thirds of the population are in the military and everybody's a government employee and everybody's hungry and it's like Stalinism still. And it sucks. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard to get a feel for what's going on in North Korea because people tend to say opposite things. They say things like that. And then somebody goes and visits and comes back and says, you know, it's not a great place, but people seem to be making a living and getting by. Okay. Like that. And then somebody else comes back and says, no, 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 there's, there's a famine that just killed 300 million billion people <laughs> and yeah. we better, but well, we don't, you know, we haven't seen the bodies, but they're, they're missing. We can't find the people. Yeah. I and heard you know, those before Bill Clinton. So, yeah. Yeah. And so you, you're left with this, this, this great mystery about what the hell is going on there, but everybody's happy to have North Korea just kind of stay where it is, including by the way, the Chinese. And this is very important because North Korea, if it has any allies or friends or people that it works with, um, I'm not sure the right word anymore, but somebody like that out there, it's going to be the Chinese. And the Chinese are thrilled to have North Korea as a buffer zone, speaking of buffer zones like in, in Ukraine, um, are thrilled to have North Korea as a big old buffer zone in between them and the United States military poised in South Korea. And you know, we already we fought a war in, in the last 70 years there in North Korea where American troops went right up to the Chinese border. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we talked about earlier in the show, almost created a scenario for the use of nuclear MacArthur weapons. was certainly pushing for it. Yeah, MacArthur was certainly pushing for it, as was Curtis LeMay and the whole the whole World, World War II crowd who could, saw it as an extension without realizing how things had changed. But nonetheless... You know, North Korea exists because it has to exist. We have to have an ultimate bad guy for the United States to to oppose all the time. You could see how poorly Russia worked out. You know, we, we were friends with Russia for a while. And 
then we became enemies with them again. And now everyone seems to be much more comfortable with them being an enemy of ours than being a friend of ours. Uh, the article that you had referenced I hate earlier, the way whenever you get the most real is when you talk about all this like it's some stupid movie. Because that is how it is. <laughs> it really is. And, and you know, you, you, you need to give more credit to movies, I think. Because they tend to be more accurate these days than, than, than straight up political stuff. But I, I'll give you just a small personal example. Um, the article that you, you have referenced a couple of times on the American conservative. The American conservative, note the title, um, was picked up by Pravda <laughs> and their English edition. And it's like, how the hell did I end up on Pravda arguing against nuclear war? And yeah, or arguing against, you know, that it's much of a worry now. Yeah, pretty nice. and it's entirely possible that not everybody was pleased that I ended up on Pravda. I mean, I had nothing no. to do with it. They grab these articles off, off the web and reprint them. And, and, you know, the kerfuffle blows over eventually. Ironic things are ironic. Who gives Ironic things are ironic. But I mean, the point is, is that we're at war, we're at war with the Russians, aren't we? Almost sort of, you know what you know, they we're... just, and this was going on right before the war broke out. And then I swear I better find the footnote now. Cause I'm going to forget it. I just saw a thing the other day where U S and Russia and Ukraine launch a rocket into space together. Like, this is still going on. October 5th, uh, <laughs> Russian launches to space from U.S. And then September 21st, Russians and Americans share spacecraft despite nations this and that. Oh, yeah, yeah, and the so, International Space Station, sure. Yeah, and then, and then you know, the, right before the war, it was a Russian rocket with American astronauts flying a Ukrainian rocket engine up to the International Space Station up there. So, you know, not to be all one world communist or anything, but I think, like, probably we could just get along with them and not have to. Yeah. Oh, Is that the Star Trek the theme? No, it's the international, the the, the communist. Uh, oh, gotcha. I the same thing. It. Yeah. No, when I get nervous, I don't believe I in that it. stuff, man. But I'm just saying we could Probably get along not. with them. Come on. Of course, of course. But it, and it's funny to see some of the old timers getting hauled out to be commentators, and you know the the nuclear strategists from the '60s and '70s, oh, and and all the people. Who I don't did watch the, TV, man. I can't take it. I don't have the stomach for it no more. I have to tell you, I've got a, I've got a hospitalization coming up, and I think the thing that terrifies me the most is not the possibility of sudden death at all, which which would you know in many ways get me out of a lot of deadlines I'm having a hard time with, <laughs> but instead the the idea that I'm going to have to watch like a week's worth of television because there's nothing, I won't be able to get out of the bed and I'm not going to be able to roll around and it's not really the environment where you can do a lot of serious reading. So I'm going to end up watching podcasts, man. You need TV. I, I need, I need podcast stat for this man. Yeah. Big time. Otherwise it's this idea that I'm going to have to watch network news and TV shows. You know what's and great, man. It's just watch Norm Macdonald. That's all you got to do. There's so much. At, I'm not Norm. It's the, uh, <laughs> The YouTube I should, channel. I should give that a try. Now there will be painkillers involved. He's got a so great that, bit on North Korea too, where TV is like, ah, North Korea, and he's like, eh, I don't know, I don't, I'm not really feeling it. You know, I'm yeah, trying to be afraid, but I'm not really afraid. Does anybody wake up in the middle of the night going, oh no, North Korea is coming? No, we no, don't. So and I'm glad hey, wait, we don't. but so 
You know who might think that would be the South Koreans? And, you know, I read this thing. I bet I asked you about this before, but I don't remember because it was okay. back a while back. But it was in the L.A. Times where some smarty pants guy, you know, who's for this, who wasn't being critical, he was explaining that, look, man, you know, we don't want peace with North Korea because we want them as a threat that we hold over the heads of the South Koreans and the Japanese so that they will let us keep our troops in their countries. But, you see, our troops are in their countries, not really for North Korea at all. They're there for China, but we can't say that. So that's why we want to prevent peace. With, and that sounds exactly like what American politicians and it, State it Department does, except, jerks Except, you know, once upon a time, there wasn't even a China to worry about. You know, this, this whole occupation of Asia thing that we do started before there was, I mean, China in 1945 was a destroyed, wrecked country. They certainly weren't a threat to anybody. Um, they were fighting a revolution that no one expected the communists to eventually win. Um, we didn't garrison Japan and Korea and everything. I just read an interesting uh, article about the, the, the turning of Palau into an American military facility. Palau is one of those little tiny idyllic islands out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You know, whenever they show p the pictures, it's always got this turquoise water and you go, people travel all around the world to go scuba diving there. And to have make it into a giant fortress because it happens to be geographically in an interesting place. Now we built this garrison before there was an enemy. We just, just waited for the enemy to sort of evolve. And it, it turned out to be, you know, the Chinese, the Russians really, and then the Chinese secondarily, but we built the garrison and then we waited for the bad guys to, to emerge. And that I think is, is one of the things that, that stands out uh, when you look back at the history of modern Asia is we didn't really address a threat. We addressed, uh, we, we just waited for the threat to emerge and then we were sitting there ready for it. Um, kind of tells you where our head was in 1945. Yeah. But, well, I mean, it's all in NSC 68 and all of that stuff. And, you know, yeah. there's this famous, uh, I guess that's Nitsa versus Kennan, but Kennan, there's this quote from him saying that, well, geez, and actually, I forget now the year of this. He might have said this at the beginning of the Cold War, or maybe toward the end. Um, anyways, I can't look it up now. It's too late. But the point no. is, he says, oh, no, uh, you know, if the Soviet Union sunk under the ocean waves today... We would have to come up with a new enemy, you know, to stand in temporarily until we could come up with a real one to replace the Soviet Union, because otherwise our economy would fall apart if we had to transition away from our warfare economy. And I'm thinking, you know what, George Kennan probably doesn't know all that much about economics, but mm. that sounds completely stupid to me. Just if you do the syllogism in your head where you take in all this effort and all this capital to make things that are only used for blowing up property and people. It sounds like a net minus all the way around. And so then you got to get into some BS about the velocity of money or some kind of thing. You know, Putin was um, said to Jack Matlock in 2015. Jack Matlock was like, look, man, you know that this missile defense thing is just a boondoggle. They're just stealing money from the American people. Everybody <laughs> knows it doesn't work. It would never work. I don't even have enough missiles to begin to try to shoot down what you got. So you should not worry, and you should not react too bad against it. Cause, and you know that, right? You know. And so Putin goes, 
you know, why can't you just subsidize some other part of your economy instead of missile defense and ring my country with anti-missile missiles? Because then, no, of course, I can't just not react. I'm the head of security around here, man. What am I supposed to do? And then, of course, three years later, he announced his massive new generation of nuclear missiles that he has that he built in response to Bush tearing up the ABM treaty and pushing all this ballistic missile defense stuff. But anyway, by the way, I got to say real quick before I finally shut up and let you talk, which is that Keith Knight has been uh, talking to a bunch of libertarian economists and uh, interviewing them and crunching the numbers on this and is hard at work writing a refutation of Kennan and how that's just really not right, that if we stop wasting money on militarism, that somehow we'll be poorer. Nah. And the nice thing is, is that given what you've just discussed, you know, here we are, we managed to put the, so the, the old Soviet Union, we just call them Russians now, we put them back on top. They're our number one enemy again. And, you know, we just, with a, with a, there's a very good sleight of hand, we managed to take them from being our new partners. You know, there was even talk at one point about Russia becoming part of NATO, which would have kind of eliminated the whole point of NATO. But nonetheless, you know, they at least kind of felt enough uh, that they could joke about something like that. And now, look, we're fighting the Russians again. And it's going to be bear versus, you know, what are we, the eagle, bear versus eagle, you know, with the dragon and everything else like that. And we're right back to where we started from. It's almost as if, the, you know, the, the, the 90s and then the zeros didn't happen. And we just skipped right from, that, you know, 1989 to uh, to now. So I have here in my office, my uh, I got these way back in high school in the 90s. Someone gave me these as a gift. The Cold War unicorns, commie versus freedom. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, they're great. There used to be this great toy store called Toy Joy in Austin Mm -hmm. that had, Mm -hmm. you know, Albert Einstein action figures and crap like that. Yeah. Offbeat stuff. So that was one of them. Very good. Yeah, man. So I guess time to invest uh, what little money you have that hadn't been inflated away in the war machine, if you don't mind money soaked in blood, because it's the only way you're going to get a good return in Joe Biden's America. That's it. Strongly there. Kind of definitely go conventional 90-10. You know, have a few speculative dollars in the nuclear side of it. But really, the real money is to be made in conventional weapons, kids. Um, if I can give you just one word, it's conventional weapons, son. Conventional weapons. Or, you know, how about the delivery systems for nuclear weapons like those bombers? Because they can make a bunch of bombers and then just fly them around in circles. But those things are expensive, man. They are. And then, you know, the, the chance of an accident or somebody makes a mistake or flies too far. It's all conventional weapons. We're using, we're blowing through weapons, you know, mortar shells and, you know, stuff that, that, that your, your great, great, great grandfather would have used in the civil war. Basically we're blowing through it like, yeah. uh, something through a goose and that through honey through a goose. And there we go. Honey. Oh, good. That may be a place, good place to leave this now. I was with thinking that. that. Yeah. Honey through a goose. Thank you so much for your deep wisdom on this issue there, <laughs> Peter Van Buren. You're great as always. Thanks, Scott. All right, you guys. Peter Van Buren, he was at the State Department. Now he's over there at the American Conservative most of the time. Nuclear chicken is overrated. And before that, who is winning? And what Jefferson's critics miss, which I missed, so I didn't ask him about it because I ain't read it yet. But that's interesting. All right, see you guys later.
The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSRadio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.